So this is our, our final week of Origins. It's been eight weeks uh, going through the book of Genesis, having uh, a look and, and possibly uh, introducing you to an alternate way of reading, an alternate way of understanding, uh, a different view that you can have a look at something and, and maybe there's two or three different ways that you can understand uh, and see maybe uh, a different way, a different way of seeing things. Part of uh, what we wanted to do was as we were kind of, uh, as Brad and I were planning going through this, we wanted some sort of visual representation of this concept of God's creation being uh, a spoken order from disorder. So there was chaos and there was nothingness and there was the ocean and there was a sea and darkness. And over this sea and over this nothingness hovered the Spirit of God. This tovu vavohu, this nothing, and then this Word of God, this breath of God speaks, and then life begins to be formed. And this creation is not so much about the formation of matter as it is about the ordering and beginning process of functioning. So that was what our, our sculpture over here was designed to sort of keep in the back of our mind. It's looking a little bit the worse for wear at the moment. I guess that happens after eight weeks uh, of coming in and out of the, of the back cupboard. Uh, but the idea was that the, the strings all on the outside represented sort of a bit of chaos. And in the middle, when it was well formed, there was a shape. And that shape was what Eden was. That shape was a place of order amongst the chaos, amongst the disorder. And in the middle of that garden and in the middle of that place, God placed Adam and Eve and creation sort of grew from there. And so that was kind of the formulation and the basis of, of where we went. And this week we finish with the beginning of Israel as a nation. <coughs> Excuse me. And Israel begins with the story of a man named Abram. And Abram eventually becomes Abraham, and he becomes the father of Israel. And as we go through, you're going to hear a lot of names as we read things. So I thought a, a good way of, of getting that in your brain before we read all of our text is just a, a little map. So uh, this big red, big red dot over here, and where I'm pointing uh, my little buzzer there, little light, that is where possibly they believe that the Ur of the Chaldees was, where Abraham was or Abram was originally from and his family. That's in the area over here. This is kind of where Babylonia ends up being. Over here, you hear a lot about Assyria. Again, so Abram goes from here all the way up. This is where Israel eventually ends up. So the reason that Israel is always in so many wars and always in so many fights is because this area here is just all wilderness. It's all desert and it's, it's inhabitable. It's very, only certain people can live in there, but it's a, it's a wasteland. And so what you've got here in Israel is this is a part that's close to the ocean and it's like a big land bridge. And so all of these superpowers here are always fighting with Egypt. This is a big superpower. And so whoever controls this has got passage to all these guys and back over there. And so that's why everyone's always invading Israel and they've got people from the north and people from the south. Everybody's trying to attack them and invade them because where they are is an important piece of land. Uh, it's still, there's still fights going on to this day. 
So basically, Abraham, Abram makes his journey all the way along here and ends up eventually here. He, does, he goes to Egypt as well. <coughs> Part of our story sees uh, him find his way into Egypt. And a lot of Abraham's journey, there's a, a, a substantial amount of representation that goes on with Israel's journey later on. We see that Abram finds himself in Israel, Abram finds himself in Egypt, and when he's in Egypt, he's sort of dispossessed while he's there. The Pharaoh takes his wife, who he lied about and said was his sister, but he gets things taken from him, and eventually uh, sickness comes into Egypt, and then eventually the Pharaoh just says, take your wife and go. Get out of here. I don't want you in my country. And then he and his family and Lot, they end up uh, moving closer and closer to where Israel eventually ends up being. So we see a lot of his journey is sort of like this little blueprint, or as we've seen all the way through Genesis, there's just patterns, cycles and cycles and patterns and patterns. And we see part of uh, Abram's journey is a reflection of what will happen to the nation of Israel as they're dispossessed and as they end up in Egypt and as eventually through sickness and plague, they get pushed out. Uh, and then they eventually find their home after many, many years. Very similar journey to the one that Abraham has. So if you have your Bible, please feel free. Turn to Genesis chapter 12. Uh, I've got a new reader today. Rob Gregg is going to be my reader. Uh, and he's going to read for us uh, as I ask him to. We're going to start in the book of Genesis chapter 12. We're going to have a look at verses 1 through 5. Take it away, Mr. Gregg. The Lord, the Lord had said, the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all people on earth will be blessed through you. Now, I've highlighted some sections in that verse because that is part of and the beginning of this covenant, this contract, this deal that God makes with this man. God finds Abram and he said, you are going to be my man. And he says to him when he's with his family and, and he's with everybody that he knows and the land that he knows, God says, leave everything and make this journey. This journey, I'm not telling you where you're going, just follow. And Abraham has this experience. They don't have a history of God and there's no priests and the world is well and truly pagan at this point. There's just multiple gods, there's everything going on everywhere. Each family had their own family gods who they handed on from generation to generation. Uh, and this God, this Yahweh speaks and Abram listens. And he says to him, come with me and I am going to do something great with you. You are going to make a nation. You are going to make a nation and your name will be great. So there's all of these great things that are going to happen to Abram if he honors God and does what he's told, if he's obedient and he follows this call. And God says to him, I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So this is 
God's covenant and most of the covenants, if not all the covenants that we are going to have a look at today, even into the New Testament, they have this theme to them, that I will bless you and then you will be a blessing to all people. So when we talk about God's chosen people and we talk about these people as being God's chosen people, it's not I'm going to elevate you and you are going to rise up to this place of prominence and then the world will be your footstool and you will live above everybody. The blessing of God is always, 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 always for the blessing of others. Okay, so that's really important to remember. Rob's going to read the rest for us now. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sari, his nephew Lot, and all the possessions they had accumulated and all the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan and they arrived there. So his family is on a journey. This is the birth, the beginning of the nation of Israel and this nation begins with a long and difficult journey. There's a trip ahead. There's a place to go. They don't really know where it is. They don't really know what's going to happen. They don't really even know this God. They don't have a history with him. They don't have probably a history that they would have had with their family deity. He is absolutely running on faith. He's absolutely running on this gut feel that he has that this encounter with this God is going to be something that is going to pay off for him and for his family. And not only for him and not only for his family, but also for all the people of the world. So what he's doing now is very, very significant and it requires him to trust. It requires him to not only trust himself, and his own capacity to hear this God, his own capacity to be able to fulfill this journey, but he's also trusting that something good is going to happen to everybody else through him and because of him. So his, his covenant with God begins with a journey. And a lot of people speak about their faith as a journey. They speak about coming to know who God is sort of at an event or through some friends, but there's always a story that leads up to it. People often speak about how something was sort of felt off in them and they began this searching process. And that can take a week, a day, a year. That could take 10 years. That could take 50 years. But something happens and we begin this process of movement. So we're going to jump ahead a little bit now. We're going to have a look at Genesis chapter 15. If you'd like to turn to Genesis chapter 15, Rob's going to read it to us now. It's from the message, this version. After all these things, this word of God came to Abram in a vision. Don't be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield. Your reward will be grand. Abram said, God, Master, What use are your gifts as long as I'm childless and Eliza of Damascus is going to inherit everything? Abraham continued, See, you've given me no children and now a mere house servant is going to get it all. Then God's message came, Don't worry, he won't be your heir. A son from your body will be your heir. So he's been promised... God comes to him and says, you, Abram, are going to be the father of a nation. 
God knows how to stroke him, doesn't he? I mean, who doesn't want to be the father of a nation? Especially in a time where the people, if you were vulnerable and if you had big people around you, a large volume of people around you, you could farm, you could protect each other, you could generate income and wealth. Um, to be a nation meant some sort of security. And Abram's saying, God, where is this nation? Where is, I'm supposed to be doing this. When's it happening? So that Eliezer that he's speaking about there, that's, his, that's a servant. And he's saying, if I don't have a child, I'm like a hundred years old. If I don't have a child, everything goes to my servant. Where is this child that you're going to give me? His understanding and his idea of the blessing is very much right in front of him. He's saying, I want what you promised and I want it now and I want to be able to see it as we all would do and probably have done. As we listen to God's promises where he tells us that he'll be present with us and he'll be with us and he'll make our way straight and all those sorts of things. When we feel alone and when we feel by ourselves, we can kind of say, well, where are you and what's going on? Now we read this text and we've got the whole story. We can kind of step back and look at it and go, oh, Abraham, if only you had faith. Uh, We can say that because I know what's going to happen next. He doesn't. It's happening to him in this moment. But we have a look and, and God is beginning this process with him of forming this covenant. And this covenant is very much based in him and who he is and his character. And this covenant is that he is going to be a blessing. But this blessing isn't just for the person who's blessed. I said earlier on that when God does bless us, he doesn't just bless us for ourselves to take it and keep it and hide it, be greedy with it, not to share it. When God blesses us, blessings from God benefits all of his creation, all of his children. So we think about that for just a moment. And when we think about all of God's creation, we think about all of God's children, we often think of all the Christians But if you take that at its sort of face value and and when God says he's going to bless all of the world, Abram's going to meet God, he's going to encounter God, he's going to learn something and then that is going to change the world. What he's saying is that everybody, that means the people who acknowledge God, he's doing these things for and also the people who won't acknowledge God, he's also doing these things for them. So we live in a wonderful country. We're blessed to live in Australia. We've doctors and nurses and schools and roads and libraries and and councils and shires and, and they've all got their issues and they've all got their problems and they all don't function the way all of us want them to. But they're there and we're grateful for them, aren't we? When we get sick, we can go to the doctor. We might have to wait a little while, but we get in. We get in. We have got all of these wonderful blessings and we're, we, to enjoy them is good. You're supposed to enjoy them. But the idea is not that we take them and then we keep them and we hide them. We cover them. We, do, we don't share them because the idea is that a, to be blessed is to then bless everybody around you. So what we have... The benefit of what we have, the education we get, the money we earn, the the privilege we have here. The idea is not that we take that and sit up on our high horse and look down at everybody else. 
the call to us is just like the call to Abraham. I will bless you so you can bless everybody else. So when you get something good, when you are blessed, the idea is that that then becomes through loose fingers, we give it to the people that are around us. We begin to share with the people who don't have. And that's how God's blessing works. God's blessing is not designed, I don't think God's blessing is designed, for one man who stands on a stage in a white suit to have jets and multiple jets and massive houses and all these sorts of things. This is the blessing of God. I think that's wicked, to be honest. The blessing of God is to come to us and then come flow to us and then flow flow through us out. And to everyone, to all his children, to those who believe and to those who don't believe, maybe to those who will never believe, the blessing of God is designed to flow through his people to all of his creation and to all of his children. Sort of puts a different strand on things, doesn't it? I think sometimes in the church we've, we've almost been guilty of looking after people who will make commitments or looking after people who will acknowledge the name of Jesus or people who we think will acknowledge the name of Jesus and those who won't we kind of don't really want to do anything for them or we don't really want to share with them. Or we say, we'll give you this, but then we have to give you this message or you have to sit through and listen to this. I think that we cheapen something there because the blessing of God is supposed to come to us and flow to all, whether they acknowledge him or not. That's not our job to worry about. Our job is to simply be a conduit and to simply do what God called Abraham to do. That is exactly what he calls us to do. It's a big life to be a Christian. It's not something that should be taken on lightly and it's not something that we cannot live without depth and without courage and without absolute character. The story goes on. We won't read it all just through lack of time but Abraham gets this vision and God gives him this vision. He kind of settles down and God speaks to him and he says there's a whole lot of stuff that's going to happen to this nation that's only just you at the moment. A hundred year old man with a hundred year old wife who's barren at this point. The only family he has are children that he's had with people that are outside of his marriage relationship or his primary marriage relationship. And God is speaking to him about this nation that's going to come. And he says, this nation is going to end up in slavery. They're going to, they're going to end up being persecuted. But eventually, eventually they will be big and they will be large and they will be wealthy and they will be an entire nation and they will find a way into this land that I am promising you. So he gets a bit of a full picture here. Abram. He gets a full picture and God says to him, it's going to be big and this is going to be a lifelong journey. And then we get to the covenant part where God actually makes this covenant with him. (coughs) And I'll read this one. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. God had asked Abram to take a heifer, a goat and a ram and to cut them in half and to separate them and make a channel. And through this channel, this smoking fire pot, this flaming fire pot made its way through these animals. And this was a sign of the covenant. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, to your descendants, I give this land. 
from the from the Wadai of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. And after that, there's a whole heap of people who are going to be included and not included in that. But here is this covenant, and this covenant is based in this land, and this covenant is based on what Abraham is supposed to do. So here we have a post-flood world. We've also got a post-Babel world. Mike preached uh, about the Tower of Babel. Uh, We've got this covenant now with this forming nation, this fledgling nation that is one family. And what we've got is God is now addressing a problem. And the problem is twofold. The problem is, number one, the good bad tree. Do you remember early on we spoke about when Adam and Eve took from the good bad tree, what they did, their sin was taking outside of the boundaries that God had placed on them. So God had said, you can have anything except this. And the reason you can't have this is because this is going to give you a knowledge that you're not prepared for. And we spoke, the illustration that I used was about a child who's thrust into adulthood well before their time. And this child can function in the adult world, but for them where they should be free and enjoying life as it is and not worrying about bills and and being frightened and scared and all those sorts of things, imagine taking a small child and putting them in a position of the responsibility of an adult into their world enters fear, anxiety, shame, and they are no longer the same. They've lost their childhood. They've lost their capacity to be present. And now they're worried about a whole heap of things that they should never be worried about. That's what the good, bad tree, when they took the fruit, that's what entered into the human story. God said to them, that will kill you. That will kill you. Because after that, they were pushed out of the garden to stay away from the tree of life. If they had taken from the tree of life, then this predicament would have stayed forever and ever. So we've got the good bad tree, which is sin, so that has to be overcome. And we've also got the problem of Babel. And as Mike shared with us the other week, Babel was man's attempt to try and make God do what we wanted him to do. So Babel was not a tower in the sense that we think of a tower. Babel was a ziggurat. And a ziggurat was this building that had a giant staircase on it. And at the top of the ziggurat, it kind of looked like a pyramid. At the top of the ziggurat was this this house. And in this house was a a bed and food that was left. And the idea was that the god or gods would meet at the top of the ziggurat. They would eat. They would have a sleep if they needed to, but they would descend down the stairs. And what man tried to do was man tried to make God appear where he wanted him to appear and to come down the stairs that he had made at the time that he had allotted him to. God said, no, we just don't do that. We don't just show up where you want when you want. I'm God and you're my people. That's my job to show up. Your job is when I do to worship me, to enjoy me, to love me. And as we tried to make God, we tried to funnel God into our place and what we wanted, that, that, that tower was destroyed and language was confused. So we've got, these two, we've got these two problems and this covenant overcomes those two problems because this covenant ultimately leads us to Calvary and it ultimately leads us to the cross and that deals with the good bad tree. That deals with our fear and our shame and our anxiety. There's a way through that. And it also deals with the problem of Babel, 
which is man begins to get to know God via Abram and by, via Abraham. So God introduces himself to Abraham and then Abraham sort of functions as a bit of a priest really and starts to mediate this presence, starts to bring some sort of order into our understanding of who God is and how God functions. So that's what this covenant does. It's the, the beginnings of Calvary starts here with the formation of Israel. I want to jump forward now. Abraham finally gets his son whom he loves desperately, desperately. And his son's name is Isaac. Abraham grows old and he dies about 175 or 200 years old. He lives a long, long life. Isaac then has children. Isaac's children, some of his children are Jacob and Esau. We know the story of Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau are twins. They're born Esau is the big, hairy, strong one. Jacob is the deceiver. And Jacob lies and deceives his way into being blessed. Eventually, Jacob marries the woman that he loves after he's deceived. And he has many sons. And one of those sons' name is Joseph. And Joseph begins this nation building that we take place. But let's just hear God engaging with and speaking to one of Abraham's sons. Thanks, Rob. Genesis 28, verses 2 to 17. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching the heavens, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I'm the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will be spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All people on the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I've promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, He thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. There is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So here we have Jacob being given the same blessing, being made the same covenant that God will bless him in order for him to bless the other people. And that story is significant because all of this is going on and this stairway to heaven is going on and this interaction between the divine and earth is taking place. It's all happening around Jacob and he says, it's all, all this is going on and I'm just not aware of it. I'm just not aware of this divine thing that's going on and I'm missing it. And once he becomes aware of it, this place, he says, is surely a holy place. It's an awesome place. I'm becoming aware of something that I didn't know anything about. This is a a fourth century painting that was found in the catacombs. And it's a depiction of Jacob's ladder and a dream. It was in the catacombs where people would hide from the Roman Empire as they tried their very hardest to be able to worship God they didn't, couldn't, a lot of people couldn't read and so they would use art and stories to convey these uh, stories from God and from the, the Bible. A place where God and us meet. That was part of God's covenant with his people. So let's leap forward now 
into the New Testament. We have a look at the book of Hebrews and we start to say, God forms this nation, there's Israel, there's the Exodus, there's all of those things. Now there's a nation, all is good. And yet again, they're occupied by Rome. Yet again, they're oppressed. Yet again, things are not working out the way that they want them to. What happened after Jesus and what is the covenant now? Was Jesus able to actually do something for us to complete this covenant? And if we have a look in the book of Hebrews in chapter 10, I want to read out for you exactly what this covenant means and is for us. So Hebrews chapter 10 says, For by one sacrifice, and he's speaking about Jesus, for by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, now this is God speaking, the Holy Spirit is speaking. This is the covenant I will make with them, with humans. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their, sin and their sins and their lawless acts I will remember no more. God says of us, their sins and their lawless acts I will remember no more. I wish to declare to you in the strongest possible terms, in the strongest biblical possible terms, what God says about you. Let's read that together. Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. Let's read that again. Their sins and their lawless acts I will remember no more. I want you to stop and think now. Because this covenant is life-changing and powerful and it is God's declaration of truth to us. What is it that you remember? What is it that is anchored in your memory, in your heart, in your thinking about what you've done that you can't let go of? What sin, what brokenness is something that you can't forgive yourself for? is something that you can't move on from, is something that maybe has happened to you or maybe something that you've done or maybe a combination of both. Maybe it's something that you really did wrong, really stupid, really hurtful, really selfish, really bad. As you hold that, I want to read Scripture to you once again. The Holy Spirit says, Their sins and their lawless acts I will remember no more. Your sin and your lawless acts God will remember no more. If God declares He won't remember it anymore, we don't have a right to be stuck there. Sometimes it can feel real. Sometimes it can feel like the truest thing about us, but it's not. It's part of our story. It's an important part of our story and not something that should be denied and forgotten. When I say don't get stuck there, what I'm saying is it's not the truest thing about you. It's not the truest thing about you. Because God declares that your sin and your lawless acts, He will remember no more. 
and where they have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. The continual drudging up and remembering of what you did wrong, the continual need to say sorry, the continual need to be stuck there, God says, this is no longer necessary. I won't remember it. It's no longer necessary for you to stay there again and again and again. It's no longer necessary for you as a people. It's no longer necessary for you as an individual to stay there again and again and again and again. This covenant is huge, isn't it? Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is, Jesus, his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with sincere hearts and with full assurance that faith that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. We have been cleansed. Jesus has done something that has changed who we are and how God sees us and how we see ourselves. And the call is for us to be able to draw near to God, to be able to enjoy His presence, to be able to enjoy His peace. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for He who was promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and and all the more as you see the day approaching. This covenant that began with Abraham, this covenant that began before that with Adam and Eve, had these tones of being a blessing and stewarding the presence and enjoying this place. And it grew and grew and grew with Noah and it grew with Abraham and it grew with Jacob and it grew and it grew and Jesus steps in and just opens the floodgates says your sin no longer has to define who you are not only for eternity but in this life now it no longer has to define who you are you don't have to keep going back saying sorry to God or to everybody else you need to make things right if you've done the wrong thing and you need to go and pay a debt to society or to other people then you need to do that absolutely but once that's done it's done And then what are we called to do? We're called to enter into the presence of God with what? Meekness. Oh God, you're so good and I'm so terrible. No, we're to step in boldly. We might say we're to step in with swag. I don't even know what that means. It just sounds good. But we're to step in with sort of, you've got some presence about you. You've got some confidence about you because God loves you and that actually makes a difference. And we're to step into his presence and the presence of other people with boldness, with swag, with confidence. Because what God did and the reason he did it is enormous and changes our lives forever. Amen? Is the covenant good news? Yes. Is the covenant good news? Yes. Yes. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I thank you that you don't remember my sins anymore. Amen? 
I thank you, God, that you don't remember the stupid decisions I made, that you don't hold those things against me, that I no longer have to live from the base of all my mistakes and my errors. I thank you, Lord, that I don't have to live based in the sin of other people on me. Those things affect me. Yes, they do. Those things play a part in my life and they play a part in my story, but they no longer have to be the defining thing. Your sacrifice, your washing me clean allows me to walk around with freedom and enter into your presence and this presence with my fellow brothers and sisters with boldness. We no longer have to be shackled down by the brokenness of our sin. The good bad tree, the snake and all the chaos no longer is the loudest and truest thing about humanity. Because when Jesus stepped in, he took all of those things and he crucified them on the cross and he said to evil, do your absolute worst. And they crucified him. Humanity crucified him. Evil crucified him. And in the grave he went. And three days later, Jesus, you resurrected into new life. And with it, our hope, our life was pinned on you. And now we can pin ourselves to you and live from a place of resurrection and hope. Amen? This is why our sin no longer defines us. This is why we are no longer shackled by those things. Because this new covenant has changed the world. You have changed everything. And I thank God that you love us and that you've moved towards us and that we know about it. Lord, would you help us take this incredible knowledge, this wisdom, and share it with those who we love? And would you help us share it with those who will accept it and with those who will not? Because the blessing is not just for those who you love. The blessing is not just for those who will accept, but it is for all of your children. Help us to remember that the good things we have are to be shared and funneled out to everybody, those who will and will not ever believe. We pray all of these things in the good, godly and resurrected name of Jesus and all of God's people said.